Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to episode 65 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Thank you for tuning in. In today's Desi Craft Chat, we have Thomas Hitoshi Pruxma discussing his latest, a literary translation of the Tamil classic, the Kural, Tiruvalluvar's Tirukural, into English. In this conversation, we talked about how literary translation can help bring languages and cultures closer. We talked about the inner journey of a literary translator and much more. Thomas Hitoshi Proxma is an author, translator, teacher, and performer. His translation of the classic Tamil masterpiece on ethics, power, and love, the Kural, Tiruvalluvar's Tirukural, was recently published by Beacon Press. Other books include The Safety of Edges, poems, Give, Eat, and Love, Live, uh, poems of Avayar, translated from the Tamil, and Body and Earth, with the artist C.F. John. He speaks and performs widely, teaches for the Cozy Grammar series of online video courses, and has received grants and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, for Culture, Artist Trust, and the U.S. Fulbright Programme. The Kural is a new translation of Tirukural, the classic Tamil masterpiece on ethics, power, and friendship, bringing Tiruvalluvar's uh, poetry and philosophy to a new generation seeking practical wisdom and spiritual sustenance. Drawing on the poetic tradition of W.S. Merwin, uh, Wendell Berry, and William Carlos Williams, and Nurtured by two decades of study under the Tamil scholar Dr. K. V. Ramakoti, this new translation by Thomas Hitoshi Pruxma brings English readers closer than ever to the brilliant inner and outer music of Tiruvalluvar's work and ideas. The book is a masterwork of poetry and practical philosophy. It's on par with other similar world classics, and it's actually a compendium of something like 1,300 short philosophical verses or chorales that together cover a wide range of personal and cosmic experience. Accompanying the translation, there's a foreword by the founder of the Institute for Sacred Activism, Andrew Harvey, there's an introduction by the translator and scholar, Archana Venkatesan. And there's a commentary of notes in which Pruxma elucidates key words and shares insights from important Tamil commentaries. Rich with um, indelible wordplay, learning, and heart, Pruxma's translation transforms the barrier of language into a bridge 
bringing the fullness of Thiruvalluvar's poetic intensity to a new generation. On a personal note, this was one of those books that completely upturned my expectations, you know, that I had going in. Um, as I read in that introduction, the verses are timeless, they're beautiful. I can only imagine that, you know, if they're so lovely in English, they must be even more so in the original Tamil. And even now, more than a month after having read it, I still open pages at random almost daily just to revisit some of the uh, philosophies and the wisdom within. And I know I will be giving this book as a gift to friends and family members for years to come. And here's Thomas Hitoshi Proxma now. Welcome, Thomas, uh, to the Desi Books podcast in the Desi Craft Chat segment. I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you about your upcoming translation of Tirukural. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Great. Well, you know, I um, I finished reading this, but I, what what's interesting to me is while I've read other books in translation from Tamil, this is probably the first book of poetry. And so I wasn't sure how it would go going in. And so let's start with perhaps if you could maybe help us situate the work and the writer and it, you know, in the Indian literary canon. I know that, you know, it's from the Sangam period which is the third to the fifth century CE, but perhaps maybe just help our readers if you could situate the work for us. Sure. Um, well, the, the work is notoriously difficult to date precisely, but it does come um, most likely from toward the end of the Sangam period. So my own uh, Tamil teacher, the late Dr. K.V. Ramakodi, uh, tended to date it around the third century. Um, David Shulman in his uh, book about Tamar, which he calls Tamar a biography, which I think is a beautiful subtitle. Uh, he dates it more around the fifth century. And so I, I tend to think from the third to fifth century is, um, you know, a reasonable conjecture. Uh, the book uh, comes, the, the Sangam period is a, a time of extraordinary literary flourishing in, in Tamar and in, in Tamar Nadu. And um, with 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 great lyric poems, with great poems of ethics and of of kingship and of what is and of uh, poetry by by men, poetry by women who were accorded the same respect as the men, and this this work comes towards the the end of that period, and is a a, a kind of guidebook to how we embody wisdom and compassion and goodness and good sense in everyday life. So it's a very um, sort of into the nitty-gritty of life, into the home life, into the life of a community, uh, into the life of the heart. And uh, it stands as one of the great works of, we could say, wisdom literature in the Tamil tradition. It's an extraordinarily uh, venerated work um, and remains, you know, to this day, there will be competitions in schools where people will uh, be challenged to memorize the whole book, which is one of the traditional ways the book would have been learned. Uh, and on uh, at the front of buses 
in the state of Tamil Nadu. Uh, oftentimes, the government buses will have a plaque at the front with a verse from the poet Thiruvalluvar, from the work, the Kural. Uh, so my first encounter with the work myself, more than 20 years ago, first when I was living in, in, the, in and around the city of Madurai in the state of Tamil Nadu, that I w my, was to see these verses, which at the time I could, you know, I could sound out. I couldn't actually read them yet, um, but I could see how present they were to to the culture and to um, its life, to its cultural life, to its uh, its tradition of wisdom. Uh, I'll give you one uh, one other example, just to situate this larger question in in sort of down to earth terms. Uh, when I was first living. In, in Madurai. I was teaching at a college and one of my students invited me home to dinner. It was my first time going to uh, a Tamar home for dinner. And it was an extraordinary feast and all of his neighbors came by to see this English teacher who somehow could speak a word or two of Tamar. And uh, at the end of this feast, they did two things that astonished me. One was they said, oh, you could just stay here and go tomorrow. And I thought, I have a slumber party, I stay over the night. I, that was still such a new idea to me. I, was, I, I very politely declined and then much later realized, oh, yeah, this, that would have been totally fine. It would have been great fun. Um, but they also gave me two gifts. And one was a book by a contemporary poet, and the other was, was Thirukurar. And uh, my student's father handed me this book with um, enormous respect. And he said, this book contains everything you need to know about every aspect of life. When you are able to speak Tamar well, you must read this book thoroughly. And I accepted the gift, and I imagined at the time, because Tamar at the time seemed completely impossible, that I would never actually read the book. But I'm, I've been graced to be able to enter the book in the way that so many people, both within the Tamil-speaking world and beyond it, have been graced to enter the book. That's beautiful, yeah. I mean, I, I, I recall you mentioning a little bit of that, not the full story, but a little bit of that um, story of how the book was given to you as a gift. And I think it's beautiful. Um, I, I, and, and you're right in, in that even though it's a classic uh, work of literature, it, it's still very much part of everyday life. And, and I say this because I, I have a friend who says to me when I told her about this book, oh, you know, my daughters murder a chorale or two every pongal and maybe I should just get them the uh, English translation because, you know, they're not doing a good job with the pronunciations. I mean, so, you know, it's something that people still recite today. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, how, so that was your introduction to the work and the writer. Um, and, and you've obviously been um, studying it uh, for all this time. But tell us a little bit perhaps about your own journey then um, to becoming a translator. And then I want to get into the actual translation, your translation approach and some of the other questions there. But tell us about your journey both as a translator and then to coming to translating this particular book that you were given as a gift. Wonderful. Um, I never intended to become a translator. And in fact, I was just writing something this morning about how when my uh, Tamar teacher first started me in Tamar, he quite uh, uh, forcefully insisted that I not translate. He didn't mean not to translate literary texts. He meant that as I was learning 
the Tamar language. He didn't want me to be constantly translating between English and Tamar in my head. What he really wanted me to do was to use whatever English words I might need to enter into the understanding of a word or a phrase or a sentence and then leave the English behind. And so when I came to uh, the point where I was able to read Thirukurar, I read it with my Tamil teacher during a Fulbright year in 2003-2004 as part of a larger project in which I was interested in how uh, people relate to places, the relationship between people and land in literature as well as in daily speech. And so one of the, the literary works we studied was, was uh, the Koro. Uh, and even then, I was primarily interested in entering the work as fully as I can. I, for instance, I learned how to compose in the same poetic form the Kural Venba that Thiruvalluvar uses in his book, not because I had any uh, uh, fantasy that I could become a great poet in Tamarit, let alone of this particularly rigorous uh, and concise form, but because it just it gave me a way to enter into the Tamar and into the language and the poetics as fully as I can. Um, but like I say, I had no intention, I didn't even have the thought at the time of translating the book. Uh, and then a couple years later, uh, I was, uh, you know, as I was sort of part of the fruit of this year of study, uh, when I read along with the Kural, I also read some of the great uh, and earliest Sangam love poems and poems of of ethics and poems of of leadership. Uh, and I wanted to share these poems with people in English. And I realized that I couldn't talk about these poems unless I translated them. Uh, and of course, there are translations available. In fact, there's some very good translations of some of the Sangam poetry, but none of them seemed to capture the flavor or the feeling that I wanted to share with with people that I was in conversation with. So that was the first step toward translating. Uh, and, uh, and it was also, it has become a central part of my own practice as a writer because I realized, I learned through the practice of it, that translation is an extraordinarily potent uh, and humbling uh, and empowering way to apprentice yourself to the work of another writer. Uh, and I have since um, I translated uh, work from both Spanish and from Tamar, and in all of those cases, it's been very much a process of, of becoming a student of, of sitting at the feet of, so to speak, these great writers, these great poets, and learning from them and with them something about language, about the language in which they wrote, as well as the language uh, that I tend to write in. But the, the, this particular translation um, was one that didn't occur to me to do for more than a decade after I first studied the work. And as part of that process of studying the work, I had memorized, um, well, I had heard, for instance, my teacher had told me that, you know, traditionally a person would go to a teacher saying they want to learn they want to study the Qur'an, and they would be told, okay, go back, memorize the whole book, memorize, uh, you know, uh, come have some basic rudimentary understanding of each verse and come back to me. And if the student sort of passed this test, then they would begin. Then the teacher would lead them into the intricacies of the language, the grammar, its deep understanding of life. Now, I didn't, uh, you know, wasn't in that, that sort of position, but I did... I did decide on my own that I wanted to have at least some of the verses by heart. So I had learned some six or seven hundred verses, ones that really stood out to me or that my teacher recommended that I learn as part of that process. 
And in the years since then, well, when I would speak with my Tamar teacher on the phone or when I went back to India to, to study other things with him and visit with his family, he would say, you know, it would be really great if somebody were to translate uh, the Qur'an uh, properly, uh, if they were to read all the different uh, ancient commentaries that you and I read when we studied it. And I always tell my teacher, oh, that would be a great thing for someone to do. Maybe there's a, a PhD candidate out there somewhere who would want to take on a project like that. And, you know, it's funny in retrospect that I never once thought, oh, he was hinting anything to me. Because, I think partly because my, my teacher was never shy to tell me what he thought I should do in any other instance. He was very clear, oh, I think you should do this, I, I don't think you should do that, for which I was grateful. But I think he was enough of a poet himself to understand that I, he couldn't tell me to take on a task as intimidating and as gargantuan as this one unless it occurred to me from within. And that's what happened uh, right toward the end of 2015. And I don't know where the thought came from. Uh, I don't. I don't recall there being any particular sort of uh, any 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 particular circumstance or event or anything. I just somewhere the thought came. Oh, you know, maybe maybe I know enough now about not only the tummer but also about my own practice as a poet, which had been d developing in that that decade or more. Uh, that maybe I could, as a kind of apprenticeship to this poet, I could translate these verses. So I started on the 1st of, of January 2016, because it seemed like a good day for beginning something new. Uh, I would, thought I would do one verse a day. Um, there's 1,330 verses, so I thought maybe, uh, you know, this will take me a long time, but I'll just do one a day and it'll be part of my practice. It'll be part of the uh, my continuing journey to being uh, becoming a better writer. And I mentioned this to my, my teacher, maybe two or three weeks later, and he said, oh, good, you finally got it. You know, I'm not getting any younger here. And, uh, and I realized at that point that he had, he had been hoping that such a, a thing would occur to me. And so I, from that point onwards, I was involved very intently in the process of, of translating it, which involved me eventually being able to go back to Tamil Nadu and to have my teacher read through the entire translation because he... Uh, we had excellent English, um, and and really take the translation as far as as we both could take it. No, that that's interesting how he'd been dropping hints, you know, broad hints all these years. Um, but I think, and you mentioned in your preface, you know, he, he, it was almost like he wanted you to come to the realization, right? Because it had to come from you that yeah. I want to do this, and and I think that's great. And and I like what you said earlier about how in a way, going back to these classics and translating, immersing yourself the way that we do in it, with a translation, it's our way of, you know, offering tribute or, or acknowledging our literary forebears, you know, and, and elevating those traditions as well. And um, so I think that's great. I, I feel the same way when I translate and I, I tend to go back to the classics myself, um, not quite as far back as the third century or the fifth century, but still. Um, so. So I so I, that that helps in in sort of situating now. You know, you mentioned just now about being a poet yourself. In the last decade, you've been uh, developing your own practice as a poet, and of course, the chorale, as you've mentioned in in your preface, as well as as I was reading, you you've said it, how technically it's a complex verse form, and and I appreciate how you describe that. What you tr you know. It's, it's interesting to me as a translator as well that you were trying to bring the two languages 
closer together. So for example, you were trying to maintain the assonance and consonance of the original or, or the way the punctuation was and to bring it across into English, not necessarily make it English, but bring it across into English. So what, as a translator and as a poet, why do you think this is important? How, how do you, you know, view that? That's an excellent uh, question. One of the reasons I think that this work is not as well known in the English-speaking world is because, for the most part, most of its translators into English, and there have been many, uh, have focused on the ideas of the work, which, of course, are, are important ideas. There's no doubt about that. But there is an enormous difference between an idea and a poem. Uh, that's what my experience as a poet has taught me. Because a poem involves not just a thought that might be formulated in words, a statement of uh, an assertion, but a poem also involves the music of language. It involves the play of vowel and consonant. It in involves rhythm and silence. And, and one of my fundamental uh, convictions as a poet is that these are as much a part of the poem as the quote-unquote meaning of the poem. Uh, so I think a lot of the translations you find are actually people who are translating the sort of the, the gist of the poem into English with more or less some of the, the similar imagery. Whereas my uh, my feeling that if I wanted to share something of the experience of reading uh, these poems out loud in Tamar, I would have to find some way to at least suggest uh, the play of rhythm. Maybe I can't, you know, because the languages are different, I know I can't obviously make the exact same rhythm, but maybe I could make a rhythm which somehow echoes uh, the original rhythm. Maybe I could find some way to echo the play of vowel and consonant. And, I'm, and this play of vowel and consonant is particularly important because uh, of the few translators who have tried to translate Tirukurol into a kind of poetic English, uh, the most famous is the first full-length translation, which was done in, you know, uh, many years ago by a, a guy named Pope. G.U. Pope, uh, and he did a great service in, in rendering the entire work available in English for the first time. But he end rhymes all of his lines, and he sometimes convolutes the lines. They become quite long in a way that they never are in the original, so that you could get the chime on the end of the first line and the end of the second line. And the great paradox is that that's not how Tamar rhymes. All of the great uh, Sangam poetry and and oh, the, you know thousands of years you know hundreds of years of, of great Tamar poetry has had a very different idea about what does it mean to have vowel sounds and consonant sounds in a rhythmic living relationship to each other, and this would mean that consonants at the beginning and in the middle of words would rhyme with each other or correspond with each other. This means that vowel sounds in certain key areas rhythmically in a line would echo each other, and they might echo each other exactly, or they might echo each other like an ah and a, uh, a sound, or a ah sound would go with an o sound, or an a sound would go with an e sound. So there was a, a very nuanced uh, sense of, of, of the sonic properties of the language, uh, which in an even more interesting way, uh, as I realized only later, 
uh, also was returning me to the roots of English because, you know, back in its Anglo-Saxon heritage, uh, linguistic and literary history, English was also rhyming consonant sounds and vowel sounds in the beginnings and middle of the words more than at the end of a line. So strangely, and maybe not so strangely, the process of seeking a poetic form in English to express my experience of these poems also turned me back to some of the older roots of English itself. Uh, and so when you were mentioning my, my aspiration to bring the languages close to, closer together, this is one of the ways I found. And I think this is what all great translation and all great intercultural dialogue does, is that it allows us, it, it, the more deeply we enter into it, the f more fully we come to understand our own language or our own traditions and, uh, and aspects which may have been uh, pushed to the side or, be, or, or for whatever reason through the play of history and time become uh, or, or are given less uh, attention and less light. And so it's a way of reevaluating, for instance, my own relationship to English and my own relationship to the poetic traditions in English as much as it is a way of me in, encountering and encountering it even more deeper and even, uh, even more deeply uh, the poetic riches of a, an extraordinary language like Tamar. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you on that. It's, you know, as I always say, it's, you're making, you're trying to make the foreign familiar, but you're also, to some extent, making the familiar a bit foreign. Beautiful. I, yeah, I that's love, very true. Yeah, I, I love what you said about, you know, rediscovering some of the roots of, um, you know, the Anglo-Saxon um, roots of the English language. Um, I, yeah, I think that's wonderful. So one of the things I found is ever since I started reading this, like, like you were saying, you, you know, when you translated, you were try, planning to do one verse uh, at a time. What I started when I started reading um, your translation was I was reading a few verses or a few pages a day because you really want, I felt like you want to take your time with these. There is, as you've said, this is wisdom literature. There is a lot of wisdom um, and, and so, for example, when I opened it this morning at random, the one that jumped out to me and I loved very much was um, bring these five out of darkness and act tools, time, place, means and deed. And I thought that's wonderful. And then I, I, saw, I, I recall that, you know, in your preface, you've described or you've, you've quoted the verses that spoke to you the most about love and family and, and se separation or grief. Uh, if there's any other that you go back to often, would you mind perhaps maybe reading out a couple if the book is handy uh, and just sharing a couple that, you know, resonate more with you? Sure. Um, sure. And I'll preface that by saying how I think this is really a book that asks to be read slowly. It really asks to be, you know, to read a verse or a chapter mm -hmm. or, or just a handful of verses and really sit with them because that's in some ways where the reading begins. Exactly. That's where the, you know, these verses start to open up and there's, for a small compact verse, I mean, it's technically it's one line plus five eighths of a line. Mm -hmm. There's four of what we could call the equivalent of a foot, what's called sir in Tamar, uh, on the first in the first line, and the second line has two sir, two of these feet, and then a half foot. And I love that it's not a it, it's it's this sort of strange asymmetry of one and five eighths. And so in this exceedingly compact form, somehow, and I think this is the gift of the poet, Thirvalnuvar 
gives so much space. And if we allow ourselves the space to really explore how a verse resonates with us, in particular, I love that you opened it and sort of looked and, and allowed yourself to, to see what sort of jumped out at you, what spoke to you, because then that becomes a, a living relationship. It becomes a kind of dialogue. And, and you, you learn things with and from the poet and from the poem through, through such a dialogue. One of the first poems that I learned let me see if I can find it here. One of the first verses I learned, you know, I think, and this is, this is even before I was studying them formally in 2003, 2004. This is back, I think, 1998, 1999, somewhere around there. Uh, and I think I heard it first, and I remember it. It goes like this in, in Tamar. Nandri marapada nandrandra. Nandralada andre marapada nandra. And I've... Uh, I've come to translate it as uh, this way. Forgetting good done is not good. Forgetting at once what is not good, good. And I'll share the tamar again just so you can you can have it sandwiched that way. Nandri marappada nandrandra Nandraladha andre marappada nandra Forgetting yeah. good done is not good. Forgetting at once what is not good, good. Yeah, you could almost hear the rhythms. There's, there's a similarity in just the rhythms of the sentences, right? Even though I don't understand Tamil, but just, um, it, and I, I recall you meant, you've described this a little bit where you said, you know, the word is, you know, isn't used. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've got an M dash in that yeah. second line. Yeah. I got an M dash and I, my hope is to convey a sense of how the pause suggested by an N dash makes not only the connection that an is would make, but a more uh, a connection which is greater than the connection that an is in this case would make. Um, kind of summing up or, or something akin to the final chord of a piece of music. Yeah, One it's more emphatic. That... I think it's more emphatic without the is. Yes. And I would never have thought of it, but when I read how you described it and then I read it out loud to myself, I was like, yes, it sounds more emphatic that way. It sounds more powerful that way. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. I'm, and I'm thrilled to hear you uh, telling me that you can hear a kind of reflection of the rhythm because that was one of the most important things to me because... Um, the, the longer that I've studied poetry, the more important rhythm has seemed to me. Rhythm and silence, which yeah. of course are deeply intertwined, deeply interrelated. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that the experience of a poem is as much an experience of rhythm and music as it is of weaving uh, meaning, different layers of meaning from that rhythm and music. So the first thing that drew me to this particular poem was in fact it's music, and there's this delicious wordplay, which I think you can hear even if you don't understand anything of Tamar, which is this play on this andre, nandre, nandri, these sounds. Nandri marapana nandrandre. Nandralidandre marapana nandre. The, the poet is having fun. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I mean, it's musical right there. It's like wordplay, uh, totally. I mean, and, and I would not have known it because, again, I don't read the Tamil, but I could see some of the wordplay I, I could tell that you had tried to carry over some of that 
in the verses as well in your translation. So, um, and that must not that must have been hard. So I have to ask you also, what sure. was perhaps the hardest or the most challenging aspect of this entire this particular you know this entire work? You know, aside from the wordplay and the language which you you've described, but what was to you probably the most worrisome, the most anxiety-inducing aspect of doing this translation? Well, there were, you know, it's hard for me to choose between two, so I hope you don't mind if I give you both of them. One is that uh, this work is, is such a venerated work um, that I felt a great sense of responsibility. I, I, I want to get it as right as I can, and which is why I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity to go to return to to Tamil Nadu, to to Madurai, to sit with my teacher and make sure I had gotten it right to the extent that he and I could see that together. Um, but even more than that, if, if I had to name the one thing that troubled me the most, was how to do justice to those verses that might be at odds with contemporary sensibilities or might even be deeply at odds with my own sensibilities. Um, because of course, as in some ways revolutionary as the text is, it has, you know, it's very clear, for instance, that Tiruvalluvar uh, believes that just being born into a quote-unquote high station, a high class or caste, it doesn't make you a, a high person. <laughs> He's very clear about that, uh, that it's, you know, uh, just as being born into a quote-unquote low station or caste or class or circumstance doesn't make you a quote-unquote low person. Other things, uh, learning, wisdom, kindness, compassion, have to do with what is truly noble in a human being. There's no doubt about that. And there is also uh, something which the um, the author of the introduction, Archana Venkadesan, does uh, really explores beautifully which is that it's a male poet writing largely uh, for a male audience and, and for kings. And yet, and this is what, what, what Archana does so beautifully, and yet in the third book uh, of the book, or the third part of the book on, on love, on romantic love, uh, there are women's voices that enter in, uh, male and female voices intertwined in very interesting ways, speaking, so to speak, back and forth with each other. Um, and and so there were there were verses, uh, there were whole chapters that I, you know, on the one hand I wanted to do justice. I don't I didn't want to misrepresent anything, as to the extent that I I could do so, and I also you know, and and sometimes this might mean, you know, seeming to say something that maybe I, as as me, uh, might not agree with. But the funny thing is this, is that in almost all of those cases, and maybe in fact in all of those cases, uh, what saved me, what saved me as a translator, uh, and what I think saves the poem itself is the very fact of the poetry. The very fact that a, po a poem, a poetic utterance, can be infinitely open. And so while there are verses which can be read uh, in a closed way and can be read to, 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 be in, to, to exemplify values we may not hold today, in every one of those cases, I think, there are ways to 
to read more deeply and say, well, maybe that is a surface meaning, and yet there's also this other poetic possibility, which is just, just as liberating now as it may have been ever. And, and so that was, for me, the most interesting inner journey of the process was sort of confronting my own sets of, of ideals, principles, uh, inclinations, and, and, and putting those up against the, the equally strong impulse to be faithful to the work, to give people as best as I can the work as it is so people can read it for themselves and come to their own conclusions, and to discover that in the process the poetry can offer the possibility of a multitude of interpretations. Yes, you know, I, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think you, there are certain verses as I was reading uh, and I was discussing with my husband and we were both saying, well, you know, maybe it means this and maybe it means that. And But I think it's great that it allow, even these two short lines of a verse allow, it, they have the, this capacity or capaciousness that allow those multiple interpretations. And I think that's very powerful, right? Um, so, so speaking of readers, though, and you, you talk about readers allowing readers to have multiple interpretations, but in general, what do you hope a contemporary reader today um, would take away from this work? What, what do you hope will be the work, or, or let's put it this way, what do you hope would be the place of this work in today's contemporary literary canon, if you like? That's an excellent question. My deepest hope would be that the book would speak as much to those who have uh, a connection, a, a, a familial or a living connection to Tamar, as to those who, who don't, and would speak in such a way that we can see how this wisdom um, is in some ways more relevant and urgent than ever the book, and I was struck by this, particularly in translating it, not only has a, a, a profound sense of egalitarianism and of, of what really makes a person noble, but it also has a deep undercurrent of a, what we could call an ecological insight, uh, an insight into how goodness in the world is akin to the flowing of a river and that the flowing of a river, an actual river, matters. The second chapter in the entire work, after a first chapter in praise of, and this chapter could be read as being in praise of God, in praise of gods, or in praise of spiritual teachers, all of those interpretations and many others are, are very possible. But the very second chapter is rain. The very second chapter in the book, in the introduction of this work, is in praise of rain and in praise of our relationship to rain and to, uh, to, you know, to the heavens, to, um, you know, to the climate, to use, you know, the contemporary language. Uh, and in fact, I believe that the book has um, some very important things to tell us now about not only how we relate to each other, but how we relate to the earth beneath our feet, how we relate to the living um, world that, that in many ways is now imperiled. And that, like all great works of wisdom, wisdom literature, it's not uh, so much a work that is sort of lost or trapped in the past, but it's a voice that speaks to us from the past 
to the present. It's almost like a love letter sent from 15 or 16 or 17 centuries ago to us now to help us get our bearings, to help remind us of what it really means to live a good life, and not just in the abstract, but in the nitty-gritty of everyday life with our, with our partners, with our children, uh, with our colleagues at work, um, with, our, with our very own hearts. Uh, and so my, my deepest hope would be that the book would find and speak to those people who are looking for that kind of guidance, who are looking for that kind of nourishment in a time which can be very disorienting uh, and, in fact, frightening. Yeah, and it is nourishment, as you said. I mean, it feels like it when we read, the, you know, slowly, a little every day, it feels like a certain, you know, intellectual or emotional uh, nourishment and I'm, I'm also very interested in what you said about how it can help us recalibrate our relationship particularly to the you know when you mentioned rain and so particularly to the natural world and I think a lot of classical works if we read them the right way they remind us to look at nature and look at the world around us the natural world around us in a very different way because that's how they looked at it back then and somehow we've lost it along the way right and and that explains a lot of the climate related issues we're dealing with today so um great um i, I do have a couple of uh, closing questions one sure. is um the book comes out in january and so my question is are you working on another translation um now what, what's next after this book that's a great question i have <clears throat> Excuse me. I have uh, a, another book which I've completed and which is in the hands of my agent who is um, waiting for the right moment to approach publishers, which is about the experience of living in a yurt. My husband and I live in a 20-foot yurt in the woods, um, and I've written a book about the day-to-day -day experience of living in such a space, both at the very practical level of what that looks like, but also at the the emotional or psychological, even spiritual level of what it means to live well in a small space that somehow through that living becomes a big space. So that's, uh, the book is, the working title in any case is Around Home Open to the Sky. So with any luck, sometime in the next couple of months, um, that will find its home. <clears throat> but speaking of translation, I'm also working on a new book. The, my current book project has to do with translating uh, a book from Spanish the extraordinary novel Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo. Uh, and this is a novel, a project, in fact, which I've been working on uh, even longer, if you can believe this, than the Coro. I began translating it in 2005, again, because I wanted to be able to share it with, with people and discuss it with people. And that's taken me on, an, on a whole another journey, a whole long journey, which continues. And so uh, that that project is a chance for me to explore the importance that I feel uh, that work holds, as well as my own odyssey in, in, in translating it, and interestingly enough, in translating it with the background not only of English, but with the background of Tummer. In fact, I read the book upstairs in my Tummer teacher's house right around the time I was studying the Tirukurul. Uh, I was reading that book out loud you know, every morning for an hour or so. Um, and that's about as much as I can say about the book, because I'm discovering what that book has to say each day that I work on it. That's amazing. I mean, I, 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 I only translate from one language, so I can't even imagine what it's like to, to be multi 
lingual and, and translating from multiple languages. I mean, it must be very enriching personally. It's yeah. very enriching and it's a most productive confusion. Yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I can imagine. Uh, but and the book about the yurt sounds fascinating. I've 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 spent time in a yurt. I I haven't lived there for an extended period of time, so that that's amazing. I, I uh, look forward to it. Well, you know, speaking of rain and yurts, I don't know if you could hear it, but the rain is falling on the yurt, and uh, when when the rain falls, it's it's almost as if I'm inside of a drum. We're inside of a drum, and so uh, the tapping of the rain is one of our um, musical accompaniments to yeah. To I heard something. I wasn't sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's but that's amazing. That's just you know you've got all the sounds of nature all around you. That's beautiful. Yes, the were the the walls of a yurt are permeable in a wonderful way, not to to the the water of the rain, which is lovely because it's nice to be cozy and warm, mm. but to the sounds of not just the rain, but to the sounds of the birds, to the sounds of of other animals. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it yeah. makes for a, a delicious space in which to grow. Yeah, very much so. Um, so my last question um, is, and you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning at the top that you spent quite a lot of time in India. And my, my guess is you've encountered other literature in India as well. So perhaps there is, besides the chorale, is, is there any other book either from India or by a writer of South Asian origin that you would consider maybe, you know, one of your favorites, perhaps? Well, I my entry point into translating uh, Tamar was through a 12th century Tamar woman poet and saint named Abvayar. And uh, a translation came out um, a number of years ago called Give, Eat, and Live, Poems of Abvayar, which was uh, my first foray into, into translating. And remains, uh, her poems were the first Tamar poems I ever memorized, and in fact, was my entry or re-entry into poetry, period. It was through memorizing her poems that I re- uh, I, I reawakened a love for language, or I had rather a love of language reawakened by this extraordinary woman and poet. Um, and so that those those poems uh, and those translations, but those poems themselves remain very important to me. And they were in an, another interesting way, a precursor to working on the Kuro because they are not the same, but they are a similar or related poetic form to the form that the Kuro is composed in. Uh, but I've also begun uh, more recently exploring the work of some of the great bhakti poets, such as mm -hmm. Andar, one mm -hmm. of the, the great Vaishnavite, uh, another woman, a wonderful saint. And this was a, a very important poet from my Tamar teacher, which is, which is partly why I, I entered into, into her poetry. Um, and I have a, another book which is in progress, which is actually a dialogue, a conversation with the South Indian painter C.F. John in which we explore the, the working title of the book is Body and Song, in which we explore the relationship of the body to the musical exp, uh, expression of, of this woman's mystical experience of, of the divine of, in her case, Krishna or Karnan. Um, beautiful, beautiful work, uh, which, which has been and continues to be important to me. Yeah, I, 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 did, I did not know about the first um, poet that you mentioned, the 12th century one, but I do know about the second one. And I've read some of that translated poetry in anthologies, um, and, and it is beautiful. 
um, it, it, it's 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 always shocking to me sometimes how contemporary it sounds. Yes. Yes, that, it, you know, you you cannot. Ima- I mean, it's unbelievable to me that it was so many centuries ago. It sounds so contemporary, and and obviously, yes, that is a tribute to the translator. Of course, we mustn't um, forget that because I'm I'm reading it in the English, but of course, the original must have been powerful enough as well. So, um, yeah. thank you, yeah, for those recommendations. You know, that reminds me, I had the great honor and privilege of meeting uh, the writer Kamala Das who became mm. Kamala Suraya. Yes. Uh, uh, and she said something to me then which continues to teach me. She said yeah. in an apparently very offhand way moment, she said, all of the great poets are young. Mm-hmm. And I've come to understand that now more fully than I did then as being that, you know, all of these great poets, Thiruvalluvar, Arndar, mm-hmm. they are young in the sense that they still speak to us so freshly. Yes. They can still, they become our contemporaries through their poetry and we become their contemporaries by opening ourselves to their poetry and that really is a marvel it's it really is a kind of miracle it it is i mean it's it's like we're communicating across the centuries through literature and what can be more powerful so thank you for that and on that note on that very positive and powerful note. Um, I want to thank you again for taking the time to come and talk to us and share your work with us. And I'm really looking forward to sharing the book with the translation with our readers and listeners and um, and airing this episode in January. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful pleasure and delight. You've been listening to episode 65 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Thank you for tuning in. Today's Desi Craft Chat was with Thomas Hitoshi Proxma discussing his latest, a literary translation of the Tamil classic, The Choral, Tiruvalluvar's uh, Tirukural into English. Episode 66 will be up shortly. Follow on Twitter at Desi Books, Instagram at Desi.Books, Facebook at Desi Books FB. Tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions then please go to the website if you'd like to sign up for the free weekly newsletter. That's daisybooks.co. And please do share this interview via social media so we can keep raising the tide of Daisy literature. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well. (laughs) 